Welcome. I'm trauma therapist and neuroscience consultant, Shauna Hill, and you're listening to the State Change Podcast. So although they did say I didn't have long to live, I thanked them for sharing and said you I didn't have much to go yet. on at that point in my life, but I know that I knew that my mom was an otherworldly type figure. She had one foot in this reality and one foot somewhere else. You've been and waiting for this I senior year, all your like high school life, and suddenly now you're like being in public service and being a politician. I have less privacy than I When my mom started working from home, I saw her a lot more. She was in meetings all day, so it was like she wasn't there, but But she when we bring everyone to the table, it's beautiful and it builds the social cohesion that is rapidly eroding in so many parts of the world. We talk with folks who faced some of life's most harrowing left turns and found their way through the fires of incredible trauma, pain, and adversity to a better state of things. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode features my longtime friend and one of the most powerful women I've ever met, clinical nutritionist Dr. Debbie Kennedy. I met Deb about seven years ago in the early stages of recovery from my 2016 cancer and neurosurgery, and I was immediately struck by the vibrancy and aliveness she brings into every room she enters. Deb is nationally renowned for her research and innovations work in culinary medicine and food coaching, as well as her groundbreaking Build Healthy Kids model for achieving healthy eating with picky or sensitive young eaters. Yet, I never think of Deb as a nutritionist. I think of her as a force of nature, and so do others. People who see Deb at the farmer's market or on a neighborhood walk wouldn't know it, but she just navigated her third major cancer experience which included a huge surgery and cutting-edge immunotherapy, all while growing her business and single-parenting high school and college-age sons. I invited Deb here to talk about a beast of an issue, our relationship with food, eating, and our bodies, and to share her own food story through eating disorders and three serious bouts of cancer over the past 27 years. Deb's professional work to connect more people to accessible, joyful food experiences that connect them to their bodies, families, and communities comes from the deep personal pain of eating disorders, body image obsession, and intractable shame she suffered for much of her life, an experience shared with the millions and millions of people around the world, especially girls and women who have also struggled to be at peace and health in our bodies that we were born into. Her state change story illuminates the cost of that body shame and diet culture that so many of us suffer, and I'm honored that she trusted me and the show with her experience. Nutrition and my relationship with food has been my barometer my whole life of how well I'm doing in life, right? And so I thought my story started July 4th, 1993, when I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and given two weeks to live. And through the last 29 years, I have discovered that my food story, my 
trauma around food started much, much earlier than that. And so what I hope to provide the listeners with is that you don't just get it all at once. You don't just like figure out you're eating all at once. It's actually a lifelong process and it really has changed the way I work with clients. I, I started in a PhD program and I thought, okay, I just need to know the biochemistry. And once I know that, then, then I'm all set. Then I can tell people how they need to eat and they're going to go away and they're going to do that. Well, that didn't work at all. So can I ask, let's go back before that PhD program. Uh, Were you a young adult when you made that decision? Was that a career change? How did you end up moving toward clinical nutrition in the first place? So actually, I wanted to become a physician. And that was my dream, was always my dream. But I didn't realize that I had been suffering from lymphoma for 10 years. And what I knew was that I couldn't go without sneaking away in the middle of the day for a nap. And so I knew I couldn't go to medical school where I had to be up three days in a row. So I'm like, where else could I work with people to heal themselves? Because I, if I stand for anything, it's helping individuals heal themselves because it comes from within. And so I looked into nutrition because I really believe that is the basic foundation of our health. I mean, the moment we are born, our first connection that is a blissful moment is is eating at our mother's breast, whether that's the bottle or the breast. We keep looking for those blissful moments. So I chose a nutrition path. And after two years, I found out I was really, really, really sick. So you're in graduate school for clinical nutrition. I also heard you say you were so tired as a young adult that you knew you couldn't go to medical school. So in some way you were tracking, I'm not in great health or I don't have great energy. And I'm curious, how did it move from I'm a person who's tired to maybe there's something wrong with me? Well, I had been going to doctors for 10 years and they kept saying, well, you're a female. This is all in your head. But I knew it wasn't in my head. And I just kept going to expert after expert after expert. And I got the same, same uh, feedback, which is you're psychologically unstable. And that's actually written in my gastroenterologist chart. And I actually have it at home. And I look at it and and just roll my eyes. And I'm just astounded because my story as a female not being believed because I was female. And so I went to the student health service, and someone at Tufts Student Health Service believed me and found the tumor. And then that just created this whirlwind where I ended up having surgery and being told that if I didn't go do chemotherapy, I'd only have two weeks to live. And that shook the foundation of my life. As it does. As you know, I'm also a cancer survivor, and I know that moment when you hear the diagnosis for the first time. For me, I think a lot about that exact moment because I remember my own brain and body feeling like it was changing in real time as that information came into me. And 
your life can kind of get divided in half between I have cancer and the moments before you know that you have cancer. Absolutely. It's a completely different way of living, 100%. And, and then you go into this, what do you believe moment? Because you have these external people telling you the trajectory of your life. And I did not have a good time with that. So although they did say I didn't have long to live, I thanked them for sharing and said, you've never met me yet. And so... That became very real on a nutrition standpoint because I had to decide what kind of food was going to heal me and what kind of food was going to damage me on a cancer level. And being a PhD student, well, you're, you know, you know, closer to understanding the biochemical mechanisms of nutrition and nutri nutrients and food and all that than when you have done your oral exams. And so I went into a scientific mode and I had this box where it was like, good for me, bad for me, carbs, protein, fat. And I was able to fill in all those grids. And I remember going, oh my God, like there's positive and negative data. There's no external force telling me what's my next step. What's the next direction I need to do? Ah, so you couldn't see a clear answer in the data, the information that right. you had available as a PhD student. Right. That should have been enough. Me being a PhD student should have been enough for me to know exactly what foods to eat and not eat. And it wasn't. Back in the early 90s, it wasn't. It wasn't there. And it became really clear to me that and this is the moment my life really changed. The moment where I decided, well, okay, I might not know what to do next month, next year, even next week, but I know what to do today. And I turned from looking for an external source of validation telling me what I want to do what I need to do to an internal force. And I have to say, since the 29 years since I was diagnosed, the question I, I really, it really makes me sad when I hear other people who've been diagnosed with cancer asking me what I did, because they're going to write that down for what they need to do. Mm -hmm. And my message is, no, you, you have a different story. You have a different body. And your body doesn't lie. You need to find out what works for you and your own body. What you're saying is very powerful to me, both as a person who's gone through cancer and had to maintain my health post-cancer, which is very challenging. It's very challenging. I think sometimes people think when the cancer itself is stable or gone, that it's over. But those of us who've had cancer understand that you never have the same brain, body, or nervous system or immune system after that. And you're always at elevated risk for future cancers, and there are outcomes from the treatments themselves. So it really is a life-changing event regardless of the cancer outcome, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And you have a different relationship with every healthcare practitioner you'll ever go see because they're always going to look at you under the lens of cancer. So I remember just having, like, I think I stubbed my toe or hurt my leg, and they're like, oh, 
that could be cancer coming back. And I just mm-hmm. remember that frightened, that fear that kept coming back to me from the outside world. So you have to learn how to really filter out the outside and learn to trust your inner, knowing your inner strength. And I call it knowings because you do know if you're quiet enough, what's going to work for you. So I think it's interesting as someone who's listened as a professional clinician for decades to lots and lots of people tell stories about a a younger time in their life. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting and notable that even as a young adult who was presumably fairly bought into the idea that all of this academic learning about food and nutrition was the path to health, had a strong enough insight and intuition to say, wait a minute, there might be another way to sort this. This way of thinking about it and looking for information to tell me what to do isn't working. How did you find a path to what did work? So I found out probably about five years ago that the professors (laughs) used to call me fringe. So I guess that meant it was always in me. I always had this knowing that there was so much more to life than the facts, so much more to life than the data, that there was this strength in this just light within me that was so strong. And I knew it had to be more than just on the physical plane. So I know I shared with you before that during the 29 years since I uh, was diagnosed with cancer, I became a shaman. (laughs) And really all that meant is that it's someone who tracks stories, but you do it on different perceptive levels. And so the first level is like the physical. So that's where I started on the physical level. Am I allergic to anything? Yes, I actually had celiac, so I could no longer do gluten. Dairy doesn't agree with me. And I learned on the physical level what worked and didn't work for me. And I also practice as a nutritionist working with individuals. And they would all come in. I I swear, like 95% would come in and go, okay, I know I'm allergic to dairy, but you can't take it away from me. And they'd get really angry with me, but they knew what wasn't working for their own body. And I felt like they were asking for absolution. Okay, go say three Hail Marys and two Our Fathers and then go ahead and, and have your dairy and it won't harm you. So there's this physical plane, and I wasn't able to really shift most individuals from that physical plane, although there were some that it was pure physical. I remember this woman in her 30s, she had her hips replaced. And I'm like, oh, honey, I think you are allergic to gluten. I think you have celiacs. And she was. And she lost both her hips because of it. And then she went on her merry way and had a very productive life. And that was enough for her, the healing in the physical realm. Sure. But it wasn't for me. So when it wasn't for you and you were starting to connect with that larger spiritual or energetic realm... Mm -hmm. I imagine you weren't getting a lot of external validation or direction about that. That was something you probably had to navigate yourself. So what did that look like? Right. So I come from a family of origin where you're not really allowed to have feelings. And I come from a family of origin where there's only one body type that is allowable. I remember my brother being beat just because he was overweight And the message I got from my family was one of, if you don't fit into this body size, you are not, you're not even worthy. You don't even belong. And that shame that brought me throughout my whole life really did a number on me. And so the next level I went to was the emotional level. So I knew, I knew from the age of probably 
too, that I turned to sugar to self-medicate, to make myself feel better. And I thought when I got to the emotional perception of things and started doing a lot of work there, and I spent a good 10, 15 years in the emotional part, like John Bradshaw's work and, and all of that, and really understanding what it was like living in a family that was both alcoholic and Catholic and um, an ex-Marine as a dad and a mom that really wasn't present, that I kind of had to figure everything out by myself. And I think that was what enabled me when I was diagnosed to then be able to step into these other realms. So then there goes the emotional realm. And I work with people on the emotional level. You do support groups and that kind of thing. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm finally here. But I wasn't. I still had another level to go to. I thought, I'm like, okay, what's after this? That's all I've ever heard of. That's all that's in the Western medicine. And then I, I learned about another one, um, and it really was in the shaman work. And it's really, it's called the mythical or family system. So it's really, when I started a weight and wellness center, I remember doing focus groups, and there was always a woman in one of the focus groups who would define herself by her family of origin. I'm the ugly duckling. I'm the fat one. Mm -hmm. And people live into those labels and they don't know that that's a false label and it's something that they don't have to live in. And so it wasn't until I realized that my relationship with sugar, which I had thought since being diagnosed might have caused my cancer and I was in this incredible disconnect with myself and I would fight with myself and go to bed every night feeling like I was a freaking failure because I couldn't stop eating the sugar and my sister was like don't you understand sugar can kill you and that still wasn't enough for me to give up my sugar and then when I get to this mythical realm I was able to go really really deep and so I was the type of child who even at the age of eight would ride my little bike to get my candy to ride it back and when I realized that and I mean this absolutely as it comes out, that sugar saved my life. When I was okay. able to get to that point where I was able to honor the sugar and thank the sugar for saving my life was a turning point in my relationship with sugar. And, and I say that because the only moment I had growing up, there was no adult that was giving me soft fuzzies. The only time I could trust something, know that when I consume the sugar. I would feel a certain way. There was never any surprise. It wasn't going to sneak up on me and attack me or anything like that. It was always there. And it, I didn't care if it was 20 minutes of bliss. That was the only 20 minutes of bliss I had every day growing up. And so that was a very, very powerful level of perception, this whole mythical family system dynamic and thinking, okay, now I'm there. So that piece of your own processing is what allowed you to look at it sounds like the ingredients in your childhood right. that sort of coalesce into a relationship with sugar, with your body, with food, with weight, right. identity, that becomes for a lot of people, as, as I see all the time as a clinician, a giant swirl that involves an enormous amount of shame. Enormous of fear. amount of shame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was like, how could I be a nutritionist and still be like this tied to sugar. And it was like exactly that. The, the swirl to me are these tapes. So as soon as I'm feeling scared or nervous or put any emotion in there, I'm going to stick in and the tape starts playing in my mind. You're bad. You're not worthy. I'm ashamed of who I am. I'm not 
I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not doing the right thing. So therefore, I have I have no value. And the, that message can become so loud that it literally consumed my mind to the point of exhaustion. And as I said, I got some relief from that realization. So one thing I hear in your story that feels really important to, to say more about is the fact that you found yourself post-cancer still aware that there was more growing and changing to do and that your relationship with sugar in particular was in some way a problem, maybe a secret, right? There was shame around it. And now that you sit as an expert in this field, you're doing really transformative work, helping people with this culinary medicine model you have. How does sugar fit into your life now? And how do you think about it in terms of people in general in relationship to food and to nutrition? So I have walked into what I believe is another level, which I call the soulful level. And so on that level, which is where I am now and how I practice completely differently, and when I hear of individuals saying that they have this addiction or that addiction, I don't jump to the food level at all. I'll start on the emotional level or even the soulful level and do some real work around what those food stories are about and grieve what was lost because you're trying to nourish yourself in a way that you were never nourished before. And it's really providing people with these opportunities to nourish themselves. And so when I eat that piece of sugar, I'm looking at it as I'm nourishing that part of myself that needs that right at this moment. And I know as a nutritional biochemist that sugar is not healthy for you in excessive amounts. But I also know for Debbie Daly Kennedy that I need a little shot of it every day for me to just love life on a different level. And it's okay. I'm not doing it to excess. And some days I might, but I don't spiral into shame anymore. I really don't. This is so encouraging and powerful to hear. You know, the research on eating disorders, on body image, et cetera, is really alarming. It's heartbreaking. It is something so many people struggle with across the lifespan. But one of the things that, you know, the sort of neuroscience research of the last 10 years has really helped us clarify is that the reason food-related behaviors, say compulsive sugar eating or other eating disorder behaviors become so entrenched and are so challenging to move past is because they are our first behaviors. Yes. Meaning babies, toddlers, and young children who might be experiencing distress, nervousness, fear, overwhelm, who maybe aren't having their needs met, haven't input system of food several times yes. a day, no matter what. And particularly once you get old enough to put your own food in front of yourself and put it in your mouth or to ride your bike to the store and get candy bars. That's about like, control. You can control right. that little bit of your life. And these substances do have a biochemical impact, right? Sugar right. in particular creates this beautiful short-term euphoric little spike in pleasant feelings in the brain and body. And I often work with clients and frame things in a way that helps us look at that sugar as a way you were taking care of yourself. Right. And you said something earlier that indicated you think of it that way too. Yes, absolutely. 
So we, we also get at a very, very young age what our bodies are supposed to look like and not look like. And if you don't fit into that, you learn that there's these rules that you're supposed to follow and it's reinforced by most everything that you see and hear. And when you don't live up to that, like right now, I'm trying to be comfortable in a larger body. And because I've gone through those four levels of perception, I can leave the house. Because let me tell you, if I'd gained weight at a younger age, I would have I would have been so ashamed I never would have left the house. And so it's really... It's devastating what we're doing to our kids and ourselves. And, you know, even post-COVID, a lot of people either gained weight or lost weight. And um, using food as a way to manage their levels of stress and anxiety and depression and and to feel good. So that's why I'm in culinary medicine, right? Because food can – I feel like food is the biggest connector that we have. I feel it started the moment we were born and – Ever since then, we're, we're trying to find those blissful moments that we had when we, were, when we were younger. And just get anybody together at a table with a lot of great food. And, and they all can have different perspectives on politics, on, mm-hmm. on vaccinations. But it's done in a way where everybody's enjoying themselves and connecting, and it doesn't become this, like, huge fight. So I just think food and eating together is a real solution to what we're seeing in our world today. I want everyone to come together over food. Invite your <laughs> well, neighbors over. And so do I. And, you know, I just learned something in what you said that sort of had an aha here, which is that when we have some sort of shame-related relationship to food and to body image or to weight, and particularly if we have some sort of compulsive or addictive process happening, which really becomes a biochemical pattern right? That is very difficult to just upend. It separates people from the things that are beautiful and Mm -hmm. connecting and culturally important and spiritually important about sharing food and making food and feeding your family. And I know, you know, for a lot of therapy clients over the years, what I see is that they they can see some vision of a life where they could have a peaceful relationship to food. And they do know what they're missing because they tell the stories of Thanksgiving dinner and not being able to be present and feeling so anxious. Or they talk about being consumed with a a weight metric or a food behavior and how it stole their time and their focus on vacation, for example. People know that a shame-based Eating relationship. Eating relationship. Can hijack your life. Absolutely. And what I'm I'm wondering is if you could talk to us more about that piece of what we get when we have a peaceful relationship with food, with our bodies. Say more about that cultural and emotional and interactive piece that you're helping people build in their lives. Right. I, I think we have gotten so far away from food, from cooking and from nourishing our neighbors, our family, and ourselves, that it's really, really important because food is just a foundation of which layered upon on top of it is your cultural and your religious and your belief system. And there are so many things involved in what ends up on your plate, right? I mean, I was just listening to a podcast from Old Ways where they were talking about African heritage and, and eating 
and how when we set the nutrition requirements, we're not really allowing for that piece. So of course people aren't going to eat something that doesn't connect with them on a deep soulful level. So it's that soulful connection, I think, is what we need to look for, whether that's a religious belief, whether that's a cultural belief, whether that's I, I don't like cows being shoved, they call them CAFOs, being shoved in these little places and there's a thousand of them. I want animals to be treated well and I choose to do organic or free range or whatever that is. Whatever I believe in, whatever I connect to, that connection is an ultimate connection that shows up on your plate, right? And I think we're missing that. We're missing that when, when we don't take time to do that. And I'm not saying you have to do it every day, but I think we need to feed ourselves on all the different levels and we do it through food, but attached to it comes all these other gorgeous connective pieces that we need to live a peaceful life. I've eaten in your home, I've eaten your food, and first of all, you're a fabulous chef. And I can also see that you take joy in preparing food, sharing food, and inviting people to your table, which in my experience, a lot of real chefs and culinary visionaries truly just want to feed people, right? When I'm at your table, I notice it's not just the food that feels good and tastes good. It does, but there's a feeling that's happening and it's often created by the people you're inviting to that table. So say more a little bit about your life on the day-to-day now and how you use food with your neighbors, your children, the people in your life, and how that has meaning for you. Yeah, so I just, I have this heart where I just, I don't want people to suffer, right? And my way of helping them suffer less is through their relationship with food. So if I can cook for anyone, I'm cooking for them. If I see someone on the street, I will go buy them some food. Because to me, that is my way of showing love and connection and honoring that person for who they are. I recently had the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma come back about Mm -hmm. three months ago. And I found myself in, again, in the same place I was in 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 29 years ago of different experts telling me different foods I can and can't eat. And I got caught up in it for a second, maybe two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. Okay. And then I came out of it and I was like, okay, how can I best nourish my body? And I'll be honest with you, my body can't handle the stuff that I used to really love yet again. So like lots of fruits and vegetables and things, but instead of sitting there thinking, oh my God, I'm going to die. I'm respecting my body because my body tells me what it needs. And everybody's body, your body doesn't lie. So it if does you, not. It doesn't. And if you can just quiet that chatter down um, and listen to it, your body will tell you what direction to go in. And so with my kids, I have two different kids, and I wrote a book on eating personalities. I got one who will eat anything I put in front of him, the, and the other one, just if he had his choice, he would be drinking uh, sweetened drinks and cookies and ice cream. And so he knows. I work with him with his 
eating proclivities, I think it is. And so I let him know, you can have that, but you have to eat this stuff first, right? So I work within different eating personalities to make it a success. And I let people know that you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be an all or nothing. But when you can cook, you will, I, I go into a Zen moment when I'm cooking and that's what you see. I, that's when the chatter stops because I'm focused on cutting that food and cooking the food and nourishing those that I'm going to serve it to. That is the most Zen meditative moment in every day that I have. Well, it shows because when I've eaten food with you or your family, with your neighbors, it feels like a celebration, no matter what's on the table. And no matter what day it is, what what mm -hmm. meal it is. Yeah. It really does. And I also see you moved to this county here, what, a year and a half ago? Yes. From another part of the state of Vermont. And it meant that you were up to meet new people. So you've been meeting new neighbors. And I lived up here, so we've been able to spend more time together. And what I saw when I came for some meals at your house is that you were inviting people into your home, sharing your food. They were sitting at your table, sharing their food with you as well. Yes. Which is amazing. And that the experience of this for everyone, no matter who's sitting at your table, is that they get to have a little bit of that zen you're talking about. Because the way you're preparing it and hosting feels different than it often feels to go eat at someone's house. Yeah. I actually used to start the meals with like whoever you are, wherever you are in life, you're welcome here. And I just really receive people in that way around the table with all your different flavor profiles and your belief systems. It just dissolves into the act of eating with one another. For folks who are listening, who feel like they're in an actively difficult relationship with their body, their diet, with food and maybe with behaviors or thinking patterns around that. Where do they start to do that shift? Self-compassion. So I had a really good friend and I would get stuck and she would always go self-compassion, self-compassion, self-compassion. So when you find yourself getting angry with yourself or not liking yourself, it really starts, and you might have thought I would have said, oh, try this food, but that's not where I start. I start with really showing yourself self-compassion. And with that, you begin to discover what is really driving that. What is it that that voice is so loud? And sometimes it's not about the food. I just told you about that today. I had this week of like self-sabotaging talk to myself, and, and, I, and it was all about, oh, I'm not eating the right food, and oh, my body's too big, and all of that. And it, and it wasn't until I showed myself some self-compassion, looked in the mirror, and I was like, what are you trying to tell me? And it had nothing to do with food. It was I was scared. I was scared of the surgery and the cancer that came back. But the way that tape that I talked about, it was quieting enough and having some self-compassion. So I would start with self-compassion and then reach out for help. This isn't to be done in an isolated way. So finding therapists like yourself or food practitioners like myself, right? I really appreciate that you mentioned that changing our relationship to food, weight, and shame in particular around that is not something that can be done in isolation. No. I, you know that as a clinician, I believe that isolation 
actually makes almost any point of suffering more entrenched. And it's in our human connections, in telling our story, and in being in connection with ourself, in watching other people and learning how they've been in connection with themselves, that we come out of the shadows of that shame and meaningfully start to feel different inside, which makes making any behavior changes or food changes you might want to make much more easy. And I see you as a person who's taught me a lot about the difference between dieting and eating for self. Yes. Is that the right way to say that, yeah. eating for self? Yeah, I call it the big D and the little D, right? The the big D, the diet, you know, you have to eat this and you have to eat that. To me, that's a four-letter dirty word, right? Whereas eating for self is more the little D, which is your culture's on your plate, your belief system's on your plate, your nourishment's on your plate, and it's about that. And the one thing you did that set me free, and you know what I'm going to say next, you told me, and I almost fell off my chair, you said, for the next 30 days, Deb, I want you to not worry about what you're eating. And I'm like, Sean, I can't do that. Like, I have to, like, think about it all the time or else it's going to get out of control. I never felt freer in my life, and I don't think I ever thanked you for that piece of advice, but that was, like, the number one best thing you ever did, and it set me free to then go on this journey of self-discovery. Oh, my gosh. I, that was years ago. Yes. What I love about you bringing that story up, and I still think about it sometimes because it's relevant for a lot of people to recognize that sometimes what we need most is space from our own selves, oh space my from our own thinking. Yes. And I knew, you know, based on whatever conversation we were having when I said that, who knows, but I knew that the gift I wanted to be able to give you was the vision of having your own mind to yourself. And I thought, Love if we that. put a time period on this, that you can be miserable about sugar or your body or any of that in, in a month. But if we could give you the opportunity to experience a break from those thought patterns and from worry and from the pressure to, to do something about this resurgence of a sugar struggle for you, that the break itself would allow you to shift it. And I still think that's true about a lot of things. Yes. I don't know if you, you know, I don't know if you've shared that with anyone else, but I still think it's true that the real theft when it comes to food-related obsessions or negative thinking, body image, shame, et cetera, is the theft of time and peace from your With own life. life. No, I feel like my life was stolen from me. I mean, I could do, I could write biochemical journal art, art, articles for the journal and I could put on these magnificent meals. And if I ate a piece of sugar before I went to bed, my, my conversation was, you're a big fat failure. And, and it negated the whole day. And that happened years after years after years. So it steals your life. Is it accurate to say that this isn't a thing you accomplish one time uh -oh. and is now accomplished? Shauna, <laughs> no, no, about, no, Shauna. Say more about what this has looked like over the last several decades as a process. Right. So when I went through the four levels, and I'm just going to repeat them real quickly right now. So... You are throughout your life going to be going, it's just different perspectives, different ways of looking at yourself. There might be a time where you're noticing some type of foods not agreeing with you. 
And I can say, especially with women as they get older, they start to get allergic to certain foods that they never were allergic to. So we'll spend some time on that physical level or or some emotional thing will happen. COVID, have we heard of COVID, right? <laughs> Where we went through this huge trauma, which is why I'm, I love the work that you're doing. Or it's time. Like I could not have remembered my brother getting beaten because he was fat any earlier than I did because it would have destroyed me. And so it's like your body has this innate wisdom in your mind that it brings things forward to you that you're going to work through your whole life. And if you can just not think, I'm going to get there, and if you're not there and you can't stay there, and then you think you're a failure, that's not how it works. That's not how life works. It is this constant ebb and flow of feeling good and not feeling good and discovering things, and that's the joy and the hardness of life. The way I like to describe it to people sometimes is to think of those old weeble-wobble toys, right? Those egg toys that can kind of knock around but then come back to center. That there is no behavior change or health change or personal growth moment that becomes a thing that happens one time and stays permanent. But the more we practice coming back to center, the better we get at remembering that coming back to center is possible and that we've done it before and that that's the best path, the more peaceful we become even when we're wobbled. Yes. And I saw that in you this year when you had a recurrence of cancer. I saw the moment of wobble because that happens when we get that diagnosis again. And I I know it was very scary. But I also saw you do today you version of finding your body, finding yourself, finding where you wanted your focus to be. And how I was going to nourish myself. Yes. So say more about just this year, just in this year moving through cancer again. What has food looked like in this year for you? Uh, So food, (laughs) I actually didn't want to cook as much. And that Ah. that was hard on me. And I had to change my diet in a way that I know from a nutritionist perspective isn't as healthy as I would like it to be right now. So it was really, I was able to, because of the practice I've had over the 29 years and the learning I had from 29 years ago, was I was able to go, okay, this is as much healthy food as I can eat, and I'm going to need to eat crackers right now, and that's going to be okay. And I didn't have the expectation that I was going to turn on a dime. To me, each illness, and by the way, folks, I've had three cancers, but each one brings with it uh, a unique message, like this nugget of a message. And to me, this time, I really looked at what wasn't working in my life, and it really was my relationship with my mother. And so I've spent my healing time working on getting those negative messages out of my head, and that's where I'm working on healing. So, And so I'm just easier with myself. And I'm not looking at it as if I put one piece of sugar in my mouth, I'm going to die, which is what it was like before. So as you say, the weeble wobbles, right? And so I wobbled, but I got back faster. You got back really fast relative to how a lot of people do. And part of the reason I invited you to come talk about your story and your work here on the podcast is because I see a lot of suffering out there in the world, particularly for girls and women, but frankly, for people of all genders around our 
relationship with food, our behaviors around it, our bodies. And almost always, the story people are carrying is rigid. It has, you know, a good column and a bad column or a failure column in it. And we become a judge and jury of ourselves very quickly and of others around food and bodies. And for folks who get to move around in a different framework about that, we have a whole different life. And as you know, I did a lot of work on this when I was in my 20s in therapy, and I've had a really peaceful relationship with my own body and with food for a long time now. And the difference, the difference in how it feels that I don't have to make a judgment about any one food choice, whether I'm sick or not, and I don't have to make a five-course meal for my children if I'm tired tonight. Right. The difference of that is a true spiritual gift to yourself. And I saw you do that very beautifully this year. Thank you. So what I'm hearing in your state change story is that it was not one linear path, but it began as a young person in health crisis who was coming to realize all this book knowledge and all this training is not what I need and it's not going to help me. Right. And if I don't look at this a different way, find a different path through this, I might not be okay. Right. Exactly. So, Deb, how can folks find out more about your work with culinary medicine and some of the other projects you have going on? So the culinary medicine textbooks, they're all up on Amazon right now. And I also have a uh, website, drdebkennedy.com, and that's drdebkennedy.com. And on there, you'll find out about the Food Coach Academy, and I'm always up for speaking engagements. I actually just talked at Google in New York City the other week. And I love speaking to people about changing their their lives with their relationship with food. So visit the website or grab some of my books. They're all on Amazon. Well, I can't encourage people more strongly. I endorse all of these perspectives, and I'm so grateful for your time today and for sharing your experience and your expertise and your wisdom with us. Thank you, Shauna. Over my clinical career, I have been situated to know intimate details of countless people's personal relationships with their bodies, their features, and their perceived sense of self and safety in the world as it relates to whatever they believe inside about the physical vehicle of the body they were born into. In so many of those folks, I have also held the details of their habits and struggles with disordered or compulsive eating, exercising, weight management behaviors, and other image-focused areas of extreme distress. Every single one of these people has been carrying a story that the body they have is inherently wrong or flawed, and in far too many of them, the cost of this story that they've been carrying around, usually since childhood, is devastating. In children, youth, and adults who believe there is a right way and a wrong way to look and to eat, and for whom weight in particular is the key metric to solve for at all times, this story frequently becomes an all-encompassing obsession, one that changes the brain and builds an entire world around the goal of changing the body we have to better fit the messages from outside of us. The cost of this in sheer time, suffering, medical or other intervention, anxiety, shame, 
loss of freedom, and overall reduced quality of life is truly staggering. And the scope of people caught up in it is heartbreaking. Personally, I did not grow up in a household with significant focus on eating, weight, or body image to the degree I saw in my friends' homes or on television in the 1980s and 90s, when today's middle-aged parents like me were forming our ideas about food and our bodies. But here's the thing. It didn't matter. It didn't end up mattering that my mom didn't talk about my body or other people's bodies or that she focused on food as a basic nutritional need and task area of life instead of connecting it to my identity or worth. It got inside me anyway, and I don't know exactly how or when, but I do know that by elementary school, I was aware that both my body and my eating were being watched by adults and eventually by other kids, and somehow I lost the thread that my body was a powerful, amazing vehicle for me to drive around in life, and that it belonged to me and should be cared for, cherished, and prioritized. Like many, many women before me, of my generation and since, and like many of the teens and college students I work with today, I entered middle school with friends who were dieting, and I began monitoring my size and eating so that I wouldn't become fat. I can see now that I was so unconsciously bought in to the fact of what I now understand was a children's version of the same beauty and size privilege given to people whose bodies and features and eating behaviors fit the commonly elevated dominant cultural norms in the media and in our peer groups and social world that I truly believed my body itself was a fatal flaw before I even reached high school. Like Deb, I struggled as a teen and young adult with disordered eating and a consuming obsession with my weight, body image, and self-worth. And my thoughts also consumed day and night with some aspect of the struggle. My efforts to control it, tame it, outwit it, outlast it, outrun it, ignore it, or change it in any way seemed almost to worsen the crippling anxiety, obsessional thinking, and harmful binging, purging, and restricting behaviors I bounced around in through my teens and into my 20s. I know personally the hell that a false food and body story can unleash in the minds of young people. And as a career teen clinician, I must name that women, girls, young people with disabilities, black and BIPOC young people, queer and trans youth, and those who come from families with a history of trauma, abuse, or lack of safety are at overwhelming elevated risk of developing disordered eating and a relationship to their bodies and self-worth that is terrorized by relentless shame, anxiety, fear, and disconnection from self with truly staggering consequences across the lifespan. This conversation with Deb about her food story, which was planted as a lie by her family system and culture, who had themselves been handed those same lies by the generation before, reminded me of how urgent it is to make sure people understand that the off-ramp to the food and body lies is to hunt vigorously for the truth within yourself. The truth is that your body is your birthright full stop. Whatever it looks like, or weighs, or does or does not do, however its features are distributed, and however you came to be the occupant of it, it is the one vehicle you will ever drive around on this earthly plane. Your body not only belongs to you, it is you. We are all one integrated system, not a head on a body, or a person distinct from that body, And the thinking brain is our newest evolutionary development. 
it's the slowest, least accurate, and most gullible player in the human experiential system inside us. And it's the part that hears the body and food lies in childhood and mistakes them for facts of life with devastating consequences. We can live as prisoners of our thoughts, and often do, but changing them and putting our attentional focus elsewhere can truly lead to an entirely changed experience. And with body disconnection and food story lies, we must do this to come back in a healthy relationship with our body and food that were stolen from us as kids or teens. About 15 years ago, I decided what I wanted was not to be thin or fit or prettier, but to live in health and to feel peace. Deb spoke of the profound way my invitation into just 30 days of peace with sugar changed her life. Peace and connection to our bodies is the goal, always. Because that one birthright vehicle we were all issued is the only one we need to understand, tend, listen to, believe, and invest in. If you are among the many of us who had your peace, health, and self-worth stolen from you by a lie that your body was anything other than magnificent, powerful, wise, capable, beautiful, attractive, and more than enough, I invite you to join Deb and I and many others who have found peace by giving yourself a period of freedom from the shame, monitoring, hustling, panicking, white-knuckling, and compulsive thinking. Choose a length of time that feels right to you, 24 hours, a week, Deb's 30 days, or even just the time it takes to take a walk or a bath or in some other way enjoy your body without telling it that it is wrong or bad. This is a nearly impossible practice to start, but keep trying. Because once you know what a few moments or a few days of peace from food and body shame and obsession can feel like, your system will naturally follow this feeling and seek more of it. It will become easier and easier, like riding a bike, in just a few minutes of time. I invite you to visit that place, a place Deb and I both could not even conceive of in the past, but live in today as a first act of reconnection to your perfect, powerful, capable birthright body. Thanks for listening. The Stay Change Podcast is a production of Stay Change Media and recorded at Dialed Studio in Burlington, Vermont on the shores of beautiful Lake Champlain. Our producer and sound engineer is Will Davis. Our story editor is Laura Rose Shepard. And I'm executive producer and host, Shauna Hill. Our show's theme music is by Phantoms, with additional music by Fairlight, Falls, Featherland, and Marie. Special thanks to our guests for their courageous vulnerability. And to John Toda, Wesley Davis, and the incredible team over at Syntax in Motion for helping us bring this podcast to life. The State Change Pod would not be possible without our amazing village. And special thanks go to Coley Hapeman, Jens Hybertson, Hannah Rosen, Ebba Lukander, Kai Gurley, and our friends at Middlebury College's Innovation Hub. If you or someone you know is struggling right now, you make sense, you matter, and you are not alone. Immediate support for mental health emergencies is available by dialing 988 from anywhere in the United States or contacting your local crisis support service or healthcare provider. To learn more about State Change Media and our mission to turn mental health into public health for all, 
or to bring more brain-based resilience to your workforce, organization, or community, check us out at statechangemedia.com or on our socials at state underscore change underscore media. We would love to hear from you.